Well, while on family vacation just a few days ago, we got on our cruiser bikes. I actually had an electric bike, which was really nice to help me pedal. We pedaled out onto the beach, um, beautiful, uh, beautiful beach, and we arrived pre-dawn just to pray, but also to see uh, the beautiful sunrise over the ocean. I don't know if you've ever done that, get up early and go out to see you know, God's creation like that. It's just such a gorgeous red ball of fire early in the morning. And it's just a reminder that, you know, God is orchestrating every single day. And all the beauty and all the artistry we see in nature is is his. That little ball first pops up over the horizon. It seems to almost pop up, you know. And then uh, it just continues rising, turning from red to orange to yellow and getting brighter and brighter and the colors dance all over the clouds and over the sea and then into your eyes. And it just reminds you that, you know, God is there. He's in control of all things. And he is uh, a God who has made everything we see. He's a beautiful God and he makes beautiful things. And it's uplifting. The sunrise, I think, radiates hope for the day. You know, it inspires others concerning the fact that there is a God and that um, he is there for us. I think ever since the time in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, when God, who's totally unchallenged in his universe, said, let there be light, and there was light, immediately obeyed him. You know, light has reigned supreme. And what can darkness do about it? Darkness cannot overcome the light, has no capacity with which to push back the light and to contain the light. Light is able to not only radiate, but also display everything that is there. Everything beautiful depends on the light in order to see its beauty. It is obvious why light also symbolizes things like knowledge and discovery and truth. Many in other religions speak of the light in their religion, although it's not light. But the Bible also speaks of God's truth being light. God's word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, the psalmist said. Modern universities claim to have enlightened minds. We know there was even a period of time in Europe called the Enlightenment. And uh, they taught that their worldly way of elevating human reason above God's revelation was somehow light. It it wasn't. It was just an old lie of the devil when the devil spoke to Eve and tried to get her to think independent of God's word. Remember, you shall not die. And so go ahead and think apart from God's revelation was Satan's message to her. Well, that's what the modern world thinks too, that man's reason, man's science is above scripture, uh, able to judge the thoughts of God. And no, it's not. It's not able to do that. They call that enlightenment, but it's not. God and God's word are true light. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. I love that verse because it it really explains why we do what we do on Sunday morning here at, at Hope Bible Church. What do we do? We unfold the words of God. And why do we do that? Because it reveals light. You get light into your mind and your understanding. Your faith 
is able to stand on solid reality and truth the way the world really is because the Word of God is unfolded to your mind. It's explained, and now you have that light in your own mind. In this world where we are constantly blitzed with conflicting truth claims, this is true, this is right, and they, they conflict with one another. I'd ask you, are you able to discern the difference between right and wrong and truth and error? If you have inside of you the life of Jesus Christ, then you have that capability of discernment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, when you learn Christ from Scripture, you're able to perceive the reality of the glory of God. You learn truth. You know truth. We gain the light of Christ. Listen, we gain the light of Christ because we have the life of Christ in our hearts, inside of us. When you go through a new birth, when you are born again, and now you have God's new life, the life of Christ inside of you, you now have light inside of you because the life brings light. You gain the life and you have the capacity now to see, to understand, to perceive truth. And so the life brings light. It's like when the life comes inside of you, the light bulb goes off. Many of you have a testimony about when you got saved and like someone was witnessing to you or you were reading something and you realized that it was true and you believed and all of a sudden the Bible started to make more sense to you. That was the spiritual light bulb going off in your mind, so to say. You were able to perceive it and understand it. Even if you've read the Bible before and you didn't get it, now you got it. Why? Because now you had the life of Christ inside of you. The life produces the light inside of you. It turns on the light bulb. The life of God enlightens every man who has it. Today we're going to return to the book of Acts in chapter 13, and we're going to see the spreading of the word of God. We're not going to really see anything that we haven't seen before. We're going to see missionaries and evangelists that are preaching the Word of God to another town. And as they're doing that, they deliver a message. We're going to look at that. And then along with that, we see changes that happen in some of the people who listen and believe. But we're going to take time to analyze that. What's really going on with them? How is it that they came to understand? We're going to talk about the life that enters in them, and we're going to talk about the light that they see, and we're going to kind of apply that to our situation. It's Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start back on verse 44 and read through verse 52. Read to the end of the chapter. Acts 13, 44 to 52. Would you follow along? I'm reading from the New American Standard. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentile. For so the Lord has commanded us, 
I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a great passage to learn about how God was spreading his word. Now, last time, we've got to do a little bit of review here. The last time that we were in Acts, I think way back in June, we were in chapter 13 and verses uh, 13 through 43. And we asked the question, what on earth is God doing in our world? Things change Things seem to be distressing, and we want to know, what is, what is God actually doing? We Christians are right to be concerned for our country and our society, but we always have to maintain a transcendent view of the events that are going on. We, have to have, we kind of have to look at our world through the biblical glasses to look through Scripture and realize that it's explaining to us what's really going on. And so what is God doing? And the answer is that God is not trying to fix up this dark and this dying world. God is not trying to fix a world that is doomed for destruction. If that's kind of in your mind, if that's what we're supposed to be doing, get that out of your mind. God is not some weak deity who's up there kind of trying the hardest that he can to improve the quality of life in this world, but he's failing and he's having a hard time, so he's trying to get all the rest of us to help him do it. If that's your view of God, you have a very faulty view of God. Rather, God is accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish, exactly what he has purposed to do. What is that? God wants to save some people out of this world and bring them to himself bring them into his kingdom, and then he wants to destroy this world. That's what he's doing. He's bringing a certain group of people out of this world to be his own, to be zealous for good works, as it says in Titus 2, to preserve them for his own kingdom, and then he's going to destroy this world, bring a new world, put us in it, and then he'll be pleased. Then things will be right. Until then, it's just not going to be right. This present earth, God is determined to destroy. It says that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. By God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? Fire. For fire. Wow. Well, it's similar to what happened in Noah's day, right? God saved eight people out of the entire world, and he put them on an ark. He preserved them. What did he do with the world? He didn't fix it up. He destroyed it. And then he had these guys get off the ark, and he said, we're going to start all over again. Now, they still had a flawed heart. They still were sinful in nature. And so things still proceeded from bad to worse. When we get to Christ's kingdom, we'll have resurrected bodies, we'll be completely changed, and things will finally be righteous the way God wants them. So our purpose in this present age, the agenda of churches like Hope Bible Church, biblical churches, must not change because the world says, hey, we need to be doing more of this or we need to be doing more of that. 
You can listen to how Paul summarized his purpose and his agenda in life, even when he was suffering. In the last book that he wrote, 2 Timothy, in chapter 2 and verse 10, he said, you know, I endure all of this suffering, including being thrown in prison. Why, Paul? Why would you do that? And the answer is, so that the elect people may obtain salvation, and with the salvation, get eternal glory. Well, why are we here? We are here to bring the elect to salvation, and so they can taste eternal glory. Someone did that for me. Someone did that for you. Now, we need to go out and do that for others. You say, but if they're elect and chosen and predestined, then they don't need us to witness. Oh, contraire, you read the scripture, and you'll see that God has not only predestined them to come to salvation, but you to witness to them so they will come to salvation. So cooperate with God, or he'll, have, he'll treat you like Jonah, and he'll do whatever he has to do to get you to go where you need to go, okay? In this passage, we see that God's elect country, the nation of Israel, was rejecting the message of their own kingdom. And so the people that were responding to the good news of the Jewish Messiah were increasingly who? Answer, the Gentiles. Who are they? All the other nations. They were responding. Now, why were they doing that? Because God was opening their heart to respond to it. God was bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, to all the nations of the world, because he had predestined and elected some of them to respond and believe. And that's what we're beginning to see happen in an increasing fashion here in chapter 13 and 14 in Acts. Christianity that started, ah, many people kind of thought of it as a Jewish sect. You know, they couldn't distinguish the followers of Jesus of Nazareth from Jews. They thought it was a squabble of religion sort of inside Judaism, right? But how did Christianity go from that to a worldwide religion far bigger than Judaism? And we're beginning to see the answer to that question right in this passage. You know, uh, today, when you look it up, it says that Judaism only is about is less than half of 1% of the world's population. I think it's like 0.2% or something like that. Think about that. They're an old religion, been around a long time, but they haven't convinced hardly anybody to be a convert. Why not? No power of God that attends them. They've lost the message that they originally had. But look at Christianity. It starts out with a bunch of basically uneducated guys in a conquered country, and they go around talking, trying to convince everybody that someone was literally raised from the dead And millions of people believe and believe it's a credible message. It eventually takes over the whole Roman Empire and spreads to every corner of the earth. Now, that's the power of God that attends the witness of God, right? So there are 2.3 billion people in the world today who at least name the name of Christ. Now, how many of them are genuinely saved? The Lord Jesus will sort that out. 2.3 billion, think about that, what God has done to spread the knowledge of the God-man, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Well, during this age, the Gentiles were chosen. The Gentiles were drawn to the light of Christ. If we were to have you raise your hand, how many of you are Gentiles? Most of you would raise your hand, right? We have a few Jewish believers, but most of you, most of us are Gentiles. Well, here we see a large number of Gentiles pouring into the church and rejoicing as they do it. You know, when John began his fourth gospel, 
he wrote these words in John chapter 1, verse 4. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what I want you to get. The life was the light of men. That's an interesting concept. The very life that entered into them, turned on the light, gave them understanding, was the very light of God inside of them. If you don't have the life, then you won't get the light, right? The light comes because you have the life. Light, light has invaded this dark world. We say that at Christmas time, that, you know, God came down and lived among us. The light of the world came and invaded this world. Jesus himself declared, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, and here it is again, but will have the light of life, (laughs) the light that comes from the life, you see. Yet incredibly, with this bright, shining light, glorious life of the Lord Jesus Christ, hope and promise for life eternal, resurrection even from the dead, people love darkness rather than light. It says in John 3, why? Why do they love darkness rather than light? Answer, because their deeds were what? Do you remember? Evil. They didn't want to be exposed by the light. So they love the darkness. They hang out in the darkness. They don't want the light of Jesus Christ shining shining on them and revealing them to be who they are. Not so well motivated. People love to get on TV and talk about all the good things they're doing. You ever notice that? But God's assessment of their life is much, much worse. Don't be fooled by any of that. People love darkness rather than the light. But our role is to shine the light of Christ on a dark and a dying world. We are educators. We bring forth light and we want them to listen. What does a dark world need more than anything else? It does not need reform. It needs light and it needs repentance to come to the truth. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to learn what happens when the church promotes the light of Jesus Christ. What happens when the church promotes the light of Christ, like Paul and Barnabas were doing. We're going to look at four effects of the light. Four effects of the light. First effect, the light reveals darkness and death. That's in verses 44 through 46. Look at it. The light reveals darkness and death. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas have targeted a Jewish audience. Notice they're preaching on a Sabbath day on Saturday, the day of their worship, and they chose the right time and the right place to present the gospel. We need to remember that when we do evangelism, know our culture, fit our culture with the people we're trying to witness to. This town, I think, is remarkable because the whole town showed up to listen. This is really one of the great missionary moments, the missionary scenes in all of the book of Acts. Any missionary or any evangelist would tell you this is very unusual. They would long to be in a position like this. Everybody came out to listen. Wow. I mean, these days it's hard enough just to get people to listen to a four-point presentation of the gospel, right? You start into it and they change the subject or walk away. Wouldn't you agree? And that what happens. And here the whole town wants to listen. Clearly the Holy Spirit was working in a great way in those days. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. And they were blaspheming. Well, you think the Jews would be excited that people want to learn about the God of Abraham. Not so. 
By the way, Luke is, is not prejudiced against the Jews. He's using the term Jews in a narrow sense here, referring to those Jewish leaders who are rejecting the gospel and causing others to do that as well. They represent false religion. You can mark this lesson down somewhere if you're taking notes. Anytime evangelism flourishes, it always draws the attention and the opposition of the devil. Well, there are three things that the Jews did, and it goes from bad to worse. First, the Jews were jealous. That's the Greek term zelos. They viewed this more politically. Who was going to be in control? Who was going to be more successful? And they were jealous of the apostles' success. Everybody was listening to them. You know, any time that we're jealous for our own power and our own glory, that's evil. So watch yourselves when other people get more than you get. You know, more friends, more money, more love, more beauty. Everyone wants to ask, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? Well, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, come on, you're going to get a new resurrection body anyways. Things are going to be fine. Live your life for the Lord's approval, and you won't be struggling with jealousy. These were struggling with jealousy. And uh, they were not happy. If you want to be a joyful person, you can't be a jealous person. I think John the Baptist is the guy who had the right spirit, and he shows us how to respond when you're decreasing and someone else is increasing. In John chapter 3, verses 27 and following, it says, His crowds were shrinking in size, and Jesus's were growing. And John said, you know, nobody can get a flourishing ministry unless God gives it to them from above. And then he said about Jesus, you know, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a great motto for life. If you just say, may the name of Jesus increase and may my name decrease, you'll be doing just fine. But these Jews were jealous for their own reputation. They wanted control. Well, it gets worse. Not only were they jealous, they started contradicting the truth. Now, that's a bad position to be in. When you're a religious person and the truth of God is being preached and you contradict that, that means you're opposed to God. It's like 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15. Paul warned Timothy of a guy named Alexander the coppersmith. What was he doing? He was contradicting the things that Paul was teaching. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, it warns about men who, quote, oppose the truth. Just like Janus and Jambres did when Moses was alive. Well, if you speak against the gospel, that confirms you're opposed to God. And then it gets worse. They even blaspheme. That means, uh, this is a very strong language, that means they were speaking strongly against God, against Jesus Christ, against the Word of God. They were slandering them. Blasphemy is a sin. You know, sometimes religious people are the ones who most oppose God. Did you know that Satan himself is a religious person? He really wants worship. One of the most evil and deceptive people you will find in religious institutions. You have to really use a lot of discernment. Make sure you choose your churches carefully, your Bible teachers very carefully. Make sure they don't twist Scripture. Now look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. See, the uh, darkness is being revealed here by the light. Look at you. Look what you are. You know, we, we had to teach the word of God first to you, Jews. It was required that the gospel of the kingdom of the Jews go out first to the Jews. That only makes sense. But now you could tell they're about to, to switch and bring the message to the Gentiles. Please notice it says they spoke out with boldness. That word, that word does not mean that they were just loud or, or they were obnoxious or something like that. It means that they spoke with freeness. They didn't have fear. 
They spoke with openness. You know, whenever you're speaking on behalf of God, wherever to be, don't, don't put a hand over your mouth, so to say. Don't, don't apologize. Don't be ashamed. Speak with boldness. That's what they were doing. Shame is for those who contradict the word of God, right? Who act like they're a light when they're nothing but darkness. Don't you be ashamed. And we should pray for one another in this regard that we all have boldness with the word of God. In Ephesians 6, 19, Paul asked, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness, there it is, that same word, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Oh, we should all pray that we will get boldness speaking the word of God. Well, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly to the Jews. The Jews got to hear about the kingdom first. You find that recurrent in the book of Acts, by the way. Throughout Acts, you always see the church and the evangelist preaching first to the Jews. Look at Acts 14, verse 1. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Acts 18, verse 4. Over and over again, they go to the synagogue. If there was no synagogue, they go to where the Jews were praying. They bring the gospel first to the Jews. It was required by Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. The kingdom is Jewish. When Jesus comes back, he's going to Israel. It's their kingdom. We get the spillover benefits of it as Gentiles but they consistently rejected it. And then he goes on, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, stand up and take notice of this. We are turning to the Gentiles. Now, this isn't the first time the Gentiles got the gospel. That's not what he's saying. But it does show a pattern. Jews... Well, early on, we saw a lot of Jews accepting the gospel. There were priests in Jerusalem that accepted the gospel. There were thousands of Jews that accepted the gospel. They knew it was true, but increasingly over time, that jealousy of this message took over, and they kept saying no. And the first persecution that came against the church was not from the Romans, nor the Greeks, nor the barbarians. Who persecuted the church first? Answer, the unbelieving Jewish leaders that had influence in the different towns in the diaspora that they were in. They brought persecution with a vengeance and they tried to turn the Romans against the church as well. Well, he says, since you repudiate it and you judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, that's strong language, returning to the Gentiles. We're giving the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jews, that term there, repudiate, means they pushed it back. They rejected it. And by rejecting the message of eternal life, they judged themselves unworthy of it. Now, there's a sense in which all of us are unworthy of eternal life. None of us deserves eternal life. But what he means by this is, you had your opportunity. It was presented to you. But in your soul, you love the kingdom of darkness more than the kingdom of light. Hey, brothers and sisters, when you go out and go evangelizing to somebody, it's not always that God is going to save somebody through you. The reason why you go out and give the gospel to some people is, well, what you're seeing here, that God will use it as a testimony against that person one day. Hey, aren't you the one that, had, that so-and-so gave the gospel to? Yeah. You judged yourself unworthy of this great kingdom. When they see it, they're going to be so ashamed that they said no to you when you offered them from the Bible 
everlasting life. Sometimes evangelism just serves the purpose of bringing judgment, exposes darkness. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Terrible place to be under the judgment of Almighty God because you rejected the message of Jesus. Be forewarned now. It's such a privilege to preach the words of eternal life. To come up here each Sunday. I don't know how many more Sundays I have to preach. I preach each one like it might be my last. And uh, when you go talk to somebody, you ought to think to yourself, this might be the last time I ever get to talk to this person. This moment might be here just because it's God-given and God put you with the knowledge of the words of eternal life. Just pray for boldness. Just speak it. See if they're willing to listen. They may not. That's, that's not your fault. You know, don't think like I got bad breath, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault. Well, I didn't, I didn't have a nice, smooth presentation of the gospel. Trust me, if God is drawing them in, if they're one of his elect ones, they'll listen to a scrambled message. <laughs> And they will believe. Now, I'm not trying to say you should try to have a scrambled message. Do your best. Sharpen your tools. But if you speak up, just say, God, I don't know what I'm saying. Help me. And then see what he does. God may use you to preach in a place. I'll never get a chance to do it. Someone finds out I'm a preacher, they run. They'll listen to you. And uh, remember that because uh, people need to hear People here in Maryland, like anywhere else, they love darkness and death. Have you ever gone through and just looked at the commercials and the TV shows and the games and asked yourself, how many of them are about death or blood or a murder mystery or destruction or stuff like that? Add it all. It seems like all they do all day long is celebrate. And I don't just mean at the Halloween season either. I mean all year long. Death and destruction and darkness. They love it. They relish in it. How many themes of entertainment are about that? It's disgusting. We have life and everything that goes with it. Why wouldn't someone celebrate that? You know, I'm tough because I got a skull on my car. Man, a skull, those people are dead, right? That's, that's, that's not being tough. People aren't even thinking about that. No, tough is being raised from the dead. And I can't do that for myself. And that's why I believed in Jesus, because he did it for himself. He raised himself from the dead. He's tough. He faced death square on and beat it. Can you do that? He's risen from the dead. I want to follow a winner. I want to follow a strong guy. That's Jesus of Nazareth. Beloved, we are children of light. It says in Ephesians 5, 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So what? What's the application? Walk as children of light. Celebrate life. Celebrate light. All right, effect number two. Effect number two of, of preaching the truth is bring, it brings light and life to the fore. This is kind of the flip side of what we just said. The verses 47 and 49. It brings life and light uh, out into the open or to the fore. We, the church, just like Paul and Barnabas, are promoting life and light. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, 
I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. That is a quote from Isaiah 49, 6. It's in the passage about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah of Israel. He is the light of the Gentile nation. I think it's instructive here that the Isaiah, the servant's role there in Isaiah's prophecies was being fulfilled at this time through the preaching of these apostles. Of course, Jesus is the light of the world, as he said in John 8, 12, and he repeated it in John 9 and verse 5. But the apostles are proclaiming Jesus, the light of the world. And so in doing that, they're doing the work of he who is the light of the world. So what does that mean? They're spreading the light of the world. That's what the church is all about. Why is the church left down here in this world? I mean, it's hard down here. You know, many of us suffer down here. Well, the answer is to spread eternal life, to bring light to the soul. God grants life through the message that we preach and the life that we live as people look at it and then respond to the message. The church is an educational institution. We're the ones promoting a message that helps turn on a light. That's education. It's education in things divine. We are the school of Christ. We bring light. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. That's why everywhere the church has gone and it has grown and it's become established, it always starts schools because the schools promote the truth. And we're about that. Whether it's a seminary or whatever it is, we're promoting truth. We're teaching truth. We do that here on Sunday. Again, so that Hope Bible Church would never get confused about its purpose, about what we're supposed to be doing, our work. We are not left down here to, to fix the environment. We weren't given tools for that. To feed all of the poor, to eliminate diseases, that's not the role of the Church of Jesus Christ. These are agendas, if we fully pursued them, it would literally ruin the church. Every one of us, our leaders especially, must know and make it clear that our business is the gospel. That's what we're all about. That has to be front and center. That's where our energies go. That's where we spend our time. That's where our money and our budget goes. This is Jesus' church. This is what he's commanded. Just like Paul and Barnabas, they serve as the example for us. And the churches that stood behind Paul and Barnabas. You know, we are down here to promote the word of life. Philippians 2.16 talks about that. Holding fast the word of life. That's what we do. After all, it's not our church, it's God's church. So it's not our agenda, it's God's agenda. You know, when Jesus came into this world, even though he, he was incarnate and he was limited, he still had the power of the Holy Spirit. He could choose to do whatever he wanted to do. If his role when he came into the world was to eliminate poverty entirely and eliminate hunger and pass on knowledge about how to produce a better crop and all of that, Jesus could easily have done that. He could easily have done that. If he wanted to end injustice or pollution or all wars or end every abortion that would ever occur, Jesus could easily have accomplished that. He had the power to do that. That was not Jesus' mission. That's not why the Father sent Jesus into the world. He chose not to do those things so that he would do something better, so that he would focus as a preacher. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Along with being the Savior who went to the cross, he was a constant teacher and preacher of the Word of God. There was a time where 
Peter came to him early in the morning and said there were more people that needed to be healed. And he said, we need to move on to the other towns. I need to preach to the other towns in Israel and make sure they hear the message of the kingdom of God. There was the priority for the church. He knew that. Listen, God's wisdom is greater than ours. You would agree with that, would you not? And so when he tells us to do something, even if we don't understand why, we just do it. And God sees the root problem with this world. The root problem with the world is sin in each individual person. We are sinners by nature, and that has to be dealt with first. God's solution for the world is not reform, but another R word, regeneration. Too often the church starts thinking about, well, we need to do this better for the community and this better for the community. And I realize that a lot of that may be well-motivated. But they're trying to reform and fix things in the world, and that's not our purpose. The purpose is regeneration, preaching the word, the only message that can actually change them from the inside out, cause them to be born again with a whole new life. That's regeneration. Reform tries to fix up a sinful, dead, and dying world. Regeneration says, look, these people are dead. Uh, Even if we got them to stand up and to do a few things, it wouldn't be pleasing to God. They need new life. They need to be born again. Once they have the life, then they'll have the light. And once they have the light on the inside of them, they're going to fix their own behavior. That's what the church does. Yes, we should be eliminating abortion. Where? Inside the church. The domain of the world is not our domain. This is the area in which we rule. We were given rulership and judging capacity inside God's church, God's people. And so we eliminate it here. We also forgive it when it happens. Don't run away afraid if you have a sin that you're ashamed of. God is a forgiving God. We are to eliminate injustice. Where? Inside the church. So that we can serve as an example to them because they will never be able to do that. And even if they did do it, it'd be for their own pride, not God's glory. And that's not acceptable to God. Yes, we should eliminate sexual sin. Where? Inside the church. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 5 one day in verses 12 and 13. Paul talks about where do we judge or not judge there and uh, he talks about this sinful man that was boasting that he had his, his father's wife. He was having sexual acts with his father's wife. I take it that was not his biological mother, but someone that his father had married. And the church was sort of being liberal about it and saying, you know, we're kind of proud of ourselves that we tolerate a man like this. And Paul was pulling his hair out. And he was like, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. I'm going to test to see whether or not you're loyal to Christ. Take them and put them on the outside of the church. It means have no more fellowship with them and don't allow them back into your congregation. And then he said, the people that are on the outside of the church, God judges. But then he asked the question, don't you judge those inside the church? And the question is asked rhetorically, meaning, of course, you're supposed to. We're supposed to have an evaluation of each other's behavior. And when it is hard against God and someone has been given patient, loving guidance to turn away from it and they refuse and they still want to stay, 
In the house of God, the answer is no, leave. And that's our domain of judgment. That's where we fix things, is in our lives first, and then in our brethren here. And we rely on the grace of God, because if we try to fix ourselves, ourselves, we wouldn't have any power to do that, because we're wicked people. And so we, we, we're gentle, and we're patient, and we're kind with each of us as we try to change. But if someone is unwilling to change, that's different. Then the church has to act in that domain. Writing the ills of society has never been the church's mission. And every time the social gospel is embraced, it ruins the church. Just study church history. In these verses, we get an incredible description of how God brings life to the elect. I want to unpack this chronologically for you rather than reading it in the order it comes. I want you to read it in the way it would happen chronologically so we can see the cause and the effect. First, if you look at verse 48, the first thing that happens is there was at some time in God's mind an appointing of some people to gain eternal life. It says, as many as had been, notice the the verb there, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Had been appointed is the verb tasso. It's a perfect passive participle. The verb tense is very important. It shows that God in the past, sometime appointed some to eternal life. Unto ace zoane ionion, unto the life eternal. That's what they were appointed to. And then the order is clear. The second step is then that those whom God had appointed believed. Pistuen is the normal, pistuo is the normal verb for uh, a believer, one who believes in God in order to be saved from their sins. So they're first appointed by God to receive eternal life, and then what happens is they end up believing. That, my friends, is what the Bible calls predestination. It's clearly taught in your Bible, not just here either. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, it makes it clear. It says, God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, God made a choice. That's the elect. In Romans 8.30, it's very clear that God predestined some, and those some he called to salvation, and those whom he called he also justified. That means he saved them, declared them innocent, and then he brings them all the way to glory. Everybody whom he predestined, he calls, and everybody he called in that sense came to faith and came to salvation. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. They're not going to be any that don't. Every last person chosen by the Father in eternity past at some point in their life will come to Christ and believe. And he promised, Jesus promised, he would lose none of them, meaning none of them will fall away. They'll all be preserved until the end. That's why it says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are what? Chosen, you know it. God has only chosen some for salvation, and those some he appointed to believe, and they do. That's why throughout the New Testament, believers are also called the chosen. Colossians 3.12, Titus 1.1, Revelation 17.14, and on and on. We're not just believers as if somehow in our own power we ended up seeing the light and believing. No, no, God chose us. He put the life of God inside of us, and that is why we have the ability to see and believe. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it couldn't state it more plainly. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 
2 Thessalonians 2.13. Well, step three, the believers changed. Notice it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Wow. They heard it. They understood it. They perceived it. They realized this is a great message. I'm getting life. And they changed. They started rejoicing in the truth. They started glorifying God's word. That's what happens when you get new life. You rejoice in the new life that you have. In Romans 12, 12, it calls it rejoicing in hope. And then the last thing is, step four, we might call it, the word of the Lord was spreading. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. God, God appointed some to receive eternal life. They believed in believing. Their life was changed. They uh, began rejoicing in the word of God. And because of that, we see the effect of it. The effect was the spreading of the seed of the word of God, the spreading of the message of everlasting life. And so the joy just multiplied and spread throughout the region. Christianity spread rapidly because God appointed some to believe and be saved. That's the second effect. All right, a little more quickly, the third effect here. When the gospel is preached, when the light is turned on in verses 50 and 51, what we see is it produces an ongoing conflict. The third effect is producing an ongoing conflict. Because there is both light and darkness now in this world, there's going to be a conflict between the light and the darkness. And they were so unsuccessful in contradicting the truth, they now realized they had to directly persecute Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. (laughs) You can't defeat them in debate, so you try to shut them down and turn off their light. Here are two godly men willing to take the heat, willing to be inflicted with pain, willing to have themselves slandered, willing to suffer for what? I'll tell you what, it wasn't for political reform. It was for the gospel. They were willing to enter into a battle and be in conflict, an ongoing conflict between light and darkness in the world because they knew it was worth it. The gospel was a light and life that was worth suffering for. You know, I think it's instructive to note how smaller groups of people, smaller groups of unbelievers in the world can literally control the masses and turn them against the church. Do you see that? It's mentioning these influential groups. It talks about the Jews stirring up the devout women. These are women that must have had a lot of money, a lot of prominence. They were looked up to. They had clout and leverage and turned them against the preachers. They stirred up the leading men. These men used their positions of power to try to get other people to drive them out of their districts. In other words, they wanted them silenced. Today, people call it the cancel culture, but they wanted them to be shut up. They want, that's what persecution is. Just We can't beat them in debate. We, we don't have an answer to the word of God, so we're just going to try to burn the Bibles or shut down the preachers or whatever. Same is true today. A smaller number of people in America are working to use their influence in business, in politics, wherever it may be, to come together and to get the Bible-preaching church to be quiet, or at least to keep their message inside the church and not out in the public square. That's going on right now. That's going on everywhere. 
And that's more now than at any other time I've seen in my life. We said that this kind of a thing was coming, but it's already here. Yes, it's unfair, and yes, it's wrong for them to do that. We're supposed to be protected by our Constitution, but they don't care about those things. Why not? Because it's Satan that was working back then, and it's Satan that's working now. And Satan always comes to where the evangelism is and comes to where the Word of God is being promoted, and he wants to shut it down. This is the work of evil spirits. Of course it is. You know, when you look at the way the media and those outside of the church talk about Christians and talk about the church, the way they describe us, it, it's constant and slandered. You could see why somebody really wouldn't want to join a church like this. You could see why they wouldn't want to become a Christian, right? Because they're told that we are like this, and these are our motives, and, this is, and it's all slander to keep people from even listening to the message in the first place. Slander is very effective, and it's going on right now. And it's sad, but we, we need to remember that behind it are spiritual forces. They're motivated by evil spirits. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it pulls the curtain back so we can see what was going on, what the spiritual battle is. It talks about the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he said our real battle is against them, and that's why we have to fight spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we're trying to do is to continue as much as we can to preach and teach the Word of God so that people can use that to understand the truth, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. These apostles way back then knew what was going on, spiritually speaking, and their response indicates they knew that they were in a battle. Look at verse 51. But they shook off the dust off their feet in protest against them and then went on to the next town, went on to Iconium. What does that gesture indicate? Well, believe it or not, this was a public protest. They were not holding up a sign. They had a different way of protesting. They went to where they could be seen and they took their shoes and sandals in some way, and they shook the dust off of their feet. When we leave town, we have nothing more to do with this town. Why did they do that? Because Jesus taught his followers to do that. In Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Wow. Don't forget how tough Jesus is for those that reject his message. The apostles were saying, we did our part. We have nothing more to do with those that reject the message of the kingdom. What zeal for the gospel they exuded. I want my life to have that kind of zeal. Do you? Do you wish you had that zeal for the gospel, that your life's purpose could be defined around the gospel? That you would stand exclusively for the gospel? That you would be willing to die for the gospel? And so the apostles, they moved on to the next town with a message of light and life to see what it would do there. 
Honestly, nowadays, evangelism is easier, easier than moving on to the next town. All you got to do is move on to the next website. <laughs> you guys that have ability in electronics, you young people that have skill out there, the church needs you now more than ever. This is the age of the techie guy. You guys have abilities to help the church get a voice out, to get from web, one website to another, to meet people online, although you need to be careful with that, to impact people. Look what we've been given with the World Wide Web. Look what the church in this age has been given. Are you going to use your talents, or are you going to sit at home playing games? The church needs you. The church, the church desperately needs people that will help us move that message into the public square, and some of it is done electronically. We'll, real quickly, the fourth effect here of light, and we saw this briefly before, is that it produces joyful living. Look at verse 52. And the disciples, and by, that, by the way, is what a saved person is in the book of Acts. A saved person is a disciple. He's one who's now learning how to follow Jesus Christ. And the disciples were continually filled with what? With joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those go together. Their life is described as fullness here. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, because you're one of the elect, you get fullness of joy, you get fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Christian life was meant to be lived. Rejoice in the Lord always, we're told in Philippians 4.4. Again, I will say rejoice. Even when sorrowful circumstances hit you, you can always have the joy of the Lord in your heart. This is what we are to see in our congregation. This is what you see in any congregation. The residual effects, the ongoing effects of life that is now in a congregation. The joy, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is first love and second joy. When you love, you can't help but have joy in your heart. When you put others first and forget about yourself, you can't help but have the joy of God in your heart. I'll close with this. The world's perspective brings worry, brings anger, brings drudgery. You have to get your mind off of all of the earthly agendas, the way the world looks at problems and solves problems, the way they're motivated. If you want to experience the fullness of God in your life, you have to do it the way God says, be full of the Holy Spirit and with the words of Christ. When your heart is fully devoted to the purposes of God and the agenda of God, very strangely, but in an overwhelming way, that joy just comes into your life. That joy just bubbles up in your life. And all of a sudden you realize, this is overwhelming. This is more powerful and greater than anything I've ever experienced. This uh, overtakes the problems that I have in my life. It's more powerful than any of those things. It comes into me in order to, to overtake me and get me out of myself and allow me to experience a life that I'd never be able to generate for myself. And that's what the light and the life bring. They bring joy and they bring spirit fullness. When you are devoted to God and to God's purposes, beloved, you will have no regrets. You'll be like these believers that are full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and then we have, I believe we have our new member reception uh, as well today. Father in heaven, thank you for the word of life. Thank you for the word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and the life that brings light with it. Thank you for the message of Jesus. Touch and change any, Lord, who need to be born again and receive regeneration in their heart. Preserve this church from 
wrongly following after things that seem to be good, but will trap us in error and weaken us. Help us to be all out for your gospel the way Barnabas and Saul were. And thank you, Father, for the truth that we learned this day. Apply it to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.